Have you ever um, looked in the mirror and saw your mother or father staring back at you? Kind of frightening, isn't it? <laughs> but it's not just our, our looks uh, that we that are imitate, but our behavior. And when somebody sees a behavior in us that they also see in our mother or father, they will say something like, well, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Now what's interesting is that adoptive parents will oftentimes hear the same thing about their adopted child. And there's actually a scientific reason for that, and it's called attunement. The child watches the the face of the parents and picks up from their face certain facial expressions like gladness or sadness, anger, or fear. And it's because they mirror their parents' expressions, they do that until their expressions of happiness begins to look like their parents' expressions of happiness. Isn't that interesting? Well, in chapter 5 of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we are encouraged to do the same. We are encouraged to imitate our Heavenly Father. In verses 17 through 32 of chapter 4, Paul has been laying out uh, how a Christian should live in a non-Christian world. And there's some do's and don'ts that he lists, ending with an exhortation uh, to forgive each other. He knows that in the church... Uh, when there are differences, that there needs to be uh, that grace of forgiveness. In chapter 5, though, he begins with a statement that I imagine must have caught the church off guard. He says to them, follow God's example, therefore as dearly beloved children. Uh, The message translates it this way, watch what God does, and then you do it, like children who learn proper behavior from their parents, for mostly what God does is to love you. Follow God's example. How in the world can we humans possibly do that? I mean, isn't this an impossibly high standard? I mean, frankly, Paul has been just recently telling them to stop engaging in some pretty bad behavior. He says, stop stealing, lying, and brawling. Brawling? What was going on at the church in Ephesus that they were brawling? <laughs> were they getting into fistfights out in the parking lot after the service? What in the world was going on? And now they're to start imitating God. Can't be done, can it? But that's not all. Paul goes on and he says, and walk in the way of love. Now how do we do that? Uh, What does it even mean? I mean, we use that word so flippantly. We talk about loving our children, loving our spouse, loving cherry pie. Does it all mean the same thing? Well, Paul tells us what he means. The next verse, he says, Just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. For Paul, love is about sacrifice. We are to imitate God by loving sacrificially as Christ loved us by laying down his life for us. And so that's the challenge of the Christian lifestyle, to live a life that is modeled on the love of God 
for us. You see, our tendency is to love the loving, to love the lovable, to love the lovely. We're quite willing to love those who will love us back. But God does, uh, God loves the unloving. God loves the, loves the unlovable. He loves the unlovely. And there's the difference. God loves people who don't love him back, people who take him for granted, people who avoid him, people who ignore him, people who don't care about God and don't care about obeying his commands. So am I supposed to love people the same way? And the answer is, yes, we are. Someone once said, the Christian life isn't hard. The Christian life is impossible. And Paul wants to make sure that our, our Christian behavior is consistent no matter where we are, whether it's at home or at church or, or at work or hanging out with our friends. You see, I can act like Christ for an hour on, at church on Sunday morning. I can pull that off without too much struggle. I can, I can imitate Christ. I can be a loving person for an hour in my small group. But what happens when I get home with my family? That's a different thing. Or at the game or or when I'm under stress, or when somebody insults me. Do you struggle with this like I do? Living the Christian life the way that you know that you've been taught, the way you know is right, the way you know is supposed to be lived, and yet falling yourself, falling, finding yourself falling short. And you keep thinking you're going to master this, and you're going to keep it in check by your own strength of will, but if the truth be told, it has mastered you. And in your heart, you fear if you, that you will ever measure up. Well, the good news is that Paul struggled just like we do. In Romans 7, the Apostle Paul writes in verse 15, he says, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do, listen, <laughs> to the very thing I hate. <laughs> I can identify with that, Paul. See, Paul is describing the struggle that is going on inside of him. He knows what, what Christ requires of him. He knows what kind of person that he wants to be, but he can't get there. He feels helpless to change. And that's exactly the way I feel sometimes, and I bet you do too. So how, what's the answer? How in the world can we possibly imitate God? Well, this past Thursday was Ascension Day. In chapter 1 of the book of Acts, Paul has, or Jesus has been with his disciples 40 days after the resurrection. They walk out to the Mount of Olives, just a, a couple miles from Jerusalem, and he tells them that he is leaving. But they are to wait until they are baptized with the Holy Spirit. And he says, you'll receive power when this happens. And then suddenly, right before their eyes, Jesus is taken up into the sky, and two angels appear. And they say to them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand there looking up into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. And so they head back into the city, and they went to an upper room where they had been staying along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus' brothers. Ten days later, it's the Jewish festival of Pentecost. And suddenly there is this 
strange sound like a violent blowing wind and it filled the house where they were staying and, and tongues of fire began to dance over their heads as they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages. And a crowd of people who are there for the Jewish festival, they hear and they see what is going on and they are amazed because they hear the disciples praising God in their own native languages and they are perplexed. What is going on? And so Peter gets up and he says, listen up. This is simply the fulfillment of what the prophet Joel spoke of when he said, in the last days I will pour out my spirit upon all people. So God is about to do something new. The Holy Spirit is no longer just for the spiritual elite, for prophets and priests and kings, but now upon everybody who, who calls upon the Lord. The third member of the Trinity, God, the Holy Spirit, is taking up residence in his church. And Luke tells us that 3,000 people came to faith that day and the church begins. This once frightened band of followers began to take the gospel into their city to Judea and Samaria and then to the uttermost ends of the earth. A couple chapters later in Acts, we read about the conversion of the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, has a blinding vision meets the risen Christ and is transformed, and he begins his missionary journeys. And around 52 A.D., Paul arrives in Ephesus. We find the story in Acts 19, and he finds some disciples there, but something seems to be amiss because he asks them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And their reply is somewhat telling, no, we, we, not, we hadn't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. What's that? <laughs> So Paul sits them down, he instructs them more fully, they are baptized with water, and then they lay hands on them, and the Holy Spirit came upon them in a powerful way, for Luke records that they spoke in tongues and prophesied. And revival breaks out in the city. There are miracles and wonders and signs and exorcisms and powerful preaching, and many people come to faith. It's all very exciting. Fast forward about 10 years when Paul sits down to write this letter to the church at Ephesus. And in verse 3, he has to remind them of some pretty basic stuff about living the Christian life. He writes, but among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. So what's going on in the church? Clearly, they're not imitating Christ. How is it that 10 years ago they started off so well but haven't seen such any spiritual growth or maturity since? I think we find out in, in verse 14, Paul quotes. We're not sure where he quotes from. Is it an ancient Christian hymn or is it a part of the baptism ceremony nobody is quite sure but listen to what he says wake up sleeper 
and rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Paul calls them to wake up from their spiritual slumber. They are spiritually dead, Paul says. You need a revival, church. See, I think churches and people need revival from time to time. I think sometimes we get complacent. Sometimes we get comfortable. I've been a Christian for over 48 years, and I've discovered that it's very easy to fall into a spiritual slump. You know, to go through spiritual dry spells, times when you don't feel close to God, when your heart feels lukewarm, when you feel kind of empty inside, when your prayers kind of like hit the ceiling and bounce back. I think every one of us goes through these, these spiritual dry times when we feel kind of disconnected from God. In fact, the psalmist himself felt it. In Psalm 85, he writes, Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you. You see, when you're going through a spiritual dry spell, when you're, when you're going through a, a slump, you don't lose your salvation, but you might lose the joy of it. You might lose the happiness. You might lose the peace. You lose the confidence. You lose the closeness that you once felt to God. So what's the key to revival, to spiritual renewal? How do we find this ability to imitate God and to love people sacrificially? Let's go on and read the rest of the passage. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, he says, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in this paragraph, Paul encourages, first of all, he says, make the best use of your time. He says, life goes by fast. Prioritize it by paying attention to the things that have eternal significance. And he says, you'll do that by understanding what the Lord's will is. And then verse 18 is the key. He says, and be filled with the Spirit. You see, it's the Holy Spirit who, who renews us in our dry times. It is the Holy Spirit who gives you and I the power to imitate God and, and to love the, uh, sacrificially. It carries the idea that we should keep on being filled with the Spirit. Now, we're already uh, baptized by the Holy Spirit at our, at our moment of conversion, but, but Paul says, I want you to be filled every day. Uh, Billy Graham once wrote, he said, the filling of the Holy Spirit should not be a, a once and for all event, as though it's one and done, but a continuous reality every day of our lives. It is a, a process that we must surrender ourselves to him daily, and every day we must choose to remain surrendered. Now, sometimes we don't feel like we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we don't feel like we have that joy. Guess what? I don't feel that way always either. But my feelings often lead me astray, so I have learned not always to trust in my feelings. Uh, no, I pay attention to them, but, but really to put my trust, put my faith in God's Word. And if the Bible says that God will, will fill me, will give me the Holy Spirit, then, and I've asked Him for that, then I choose to believe that God is faithful to His promise, not to the way that I feel that particular day. I mean, the truth is, some days I don't feel married. 
And maybe sometimes, you know, you feel the same way, but that doesn't change anything. <laughs> you know, I still have this wedding ring on my finger to remind me, Mark, you're married, and you better act that way. You'll be in big trouble. But I think there are some things that can hinder the Holy Spirit having His way in our lives. At least these are a couple that I've discovered in my own life. First of all, missing those God opportunities. If I can be honest, there have been times when, when I've, I've missed it because I've been too busy or because I want God to bless my plans rather than, than God, you know, give me the direction He wants me to go. In Acts 16, Paul is on his second missionary journey. And his traveling companion is Silas, and they've been visiting the churches that they planted on his first, on his first missionary trip. But one night, Paul has a vision. A, a man says to him, come over to Macedonia and help us. And so Paul shares his vision with his traveling companions, and together they conclude that this is nothing less than supernatural direction from God. And so they set sail, sail for, for Greece, for Philippi. And there they meet a businesswoman named Lydia. They lead her to faith in Christ. And it's through her that the church in Philippi begins. You see, they chose to obey the Spirit's prompting. But what if Paul had chosen to ignore this vision, this dream? Or what if they had been in such a hurry and so intent on, on God blessing their plans that they missed God's call? And it's so easy to do that. So easy to move forward with our own life plans and to miss what God has in store for us. But in my experience, I've discovered that God's dreams for me are always much bigger than my own dreams for myself. See, I think God is calling us to risk anything, to do anything, and to change anything in order to help people to experience the life-transforming power of God and to be encouraged to walk with Christ themselves. Well, there's another thing that sometimes can hinder our spiritual growth, and, and that's not doing God's will. Paul writes, he says, Do not be foolish, but understand the Lord's will. We have a great example of that in Exodus 3, the story of Moses. He, he's hanging out with the sheep on Mount Sinai. He noticed that a, a bush is on fire. He goes over to investigate, and he notices the bush is not burning up, and so that really gets his attention. And God uses that moment to speak to him. He says, Moses, take off your sandals because you're standing on holy ground. And Moses was terrified. God tells Moses that he's about to do something for the Hebrews still in captivity in Egypt. And I'll bet this got Moses really excited. I mean, he's seen the injustice. He, he's seen the suffering. He knew how bad the Israelite situation was in, in back in Egypt. And at last, after 400 years, God was finally going to do something. But that's not what God is thinking. In verse 10, God says to Moses, So come, I will send you to Pharaoh. <laughs> whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute. I, I thought you were going to do something, God. You want me to do something? Yep. Isn't that funny? We think these Bible heroes are so perfect, don't we? That they, could, that they are so far beyond us. And we could never be like them. We think that the Bible heroes were unique people who had this direct communication line to God. We think that they were men and, and women of enormous faith and courage and that when God spoke, they obeyed. <laughs> they listened. Not so. Moses gives God a number of excuses. 
of why he can't do it. God, I don't, I'm not a good speaker. I stutter. And on and on. And finally, God answers every one of his excuses. And finally, Moses says, please, God, send someone else. <laughs> you ever said that? Not me, God. Send somebody else to do it. You see, Moses, he knows God's will. He knows this is something that needs to be done, but he doesn't want to do it. And the truth be told, most of us feel inadequate to respond to the Spirit's promptings. But for some reason, these are the people that God chooses to use. That he can, he can do something with those of us who, who see what we are and what we need to do. These are the people who listen to the Spirit's promptings rather than their own feelings. And so God never chooses those of us who are particularly saintly or intelligent or imaginative or daring. If he did, he, he wouldn't have chosen me. See, you don't need the Spirit to accomplish those things for which you can do on your own, but for those things that you cannot do yourself. And so really, it's a call to fully surrender to Christ. And the truth is, it's not really even about you or about me. It's really about God's mission. And it's not even really about doing good stuff. I mean, you can do good stuff without God. Lots of people do stuff in this world without giving a thought about God. It's really about creating righteous people. It's about multiplying disciples of Jesus. And it may be reckless. It may be distasteful to you. It may even be dangerous. And your friends or your family may think you're weird for doing it. But it's okay. I'm just amazed. We have, we have 45 people signed up for our, our annual trip to Appalachian Service Project this year. And every time I think, well, you know, who in the world would do that? Who would give up a, a week of vacation time, travel to another state, work your buns off, and get nothing for it? That's just against my natural inclination. But there is something that happens to the person when they fully surrender themselves to God. And when they're filled with the Holy Spirit. I think there's one more obstacle that we need to be careful of. And that's unrepentant sin. The truth is, of course, we all sin. But the Bible gives us the promise that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But there's a real spiritual danger to unrepentant sin. And Paul, in fact, had to warn the Ephesians in chapter 4. He said, do not grieve. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Instead, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. I worry sometimes that we can resist the Holy Spirit's work, His activity in our life. A.W. Tozer wrote this. He said, to expose our hearts to truth and consistently refuse or neglect to obey the impulses the Spirit arouses is to stymie the motions of life within us and if persisted in to grieve the Holy Spirit into silence. So how do we know that we're walking in the Spirit? How do we know we're filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, it's the fruit of the Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers us to imitate Christ. In fact, it is pretty much impossible to live the Christian life apart from the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who, who enables us to live life according to God's commands and to say no to sin and temptation that comes our way. 
Paul again writes in Romans 8, 13, If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, then you will live. There it is. Apart from the Holy Spirit living in us, it's not even possible to live the Christian life. Well, let's finish up. Verses 8 through 11, Paul writes this. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. See, Paul's reminding us that fruit needs to grow in the light. That photosynthesis cannot take place in the dark. He says it's the same in your spiritual life. Paul encourages you and me to live in the light of Christ. So how are you doing in that? How are you doing with goodness? How are you doing with righteousness? How are you doing with truth? Are you seeing some changes in those areas? When you go to the grocery store and you're in the 10 items or less line and the person in front of you is mathematically challenged, how do you deal with that? How do you handle that? Do you get angry? Do you want to say some mean words? Or do you pray, Lord, use this as an opportunity. Teach me patience. To be kind. To be compassionate. To care about people first and foremost. God's going to keep his promise to see you through this. You're not doing this on your own. Imitating Jesus is impossible. But with the Holy Spirit, with God's power, all things are possible. So if you and I are going to change the world, <laughs> if the church is going to help people, to connect with God and to experience His life transformation, then you and I, we need to be walking in the way of love. We can have all sorts of wonderful programs and we can have all sorts of great ideas, but if we don't have love in us, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, that we're dead. Maybe we need to wake up. Maybe we need a revival. Do you want the power of the Holy Spirit to imitate Christ? Would you like to be so full of, of love for others that your neighbors and friends ask you why you're so different? Do you want to have the spiritual fortitude to live the Christian life well? My friends, it begins by surrendering our hearts and our minds to God, to inviting the Holy Spirit to come in and to take over and to change our hearts and to make us into the very image of God. Maybe that for some of you today, you've never taken that first step of surrendering. And if you are, I want you to know that there's a commit card in the pew that you can fill out and turn in today. And if you do, somebody will call you and will we'll follow up on how you can take the next steps in your walk with Christ. I want to give you and all of us the opportunity to do that now. Let's bow our heads. God, we uh, confess there are times when we grow complacent. There are times when we become comfortable. There are times, God, when our heart is lukewarm. And those times, oh God, we need a fresh infilling of your Holy Spirit. God, you told the Christians in Ephesus to wake up. <laughs> oh God, may we wake up. May the church, may your church be a power for good 
power for life transformation. May we learn, Lord, from your example to live life sacrificially. So come, Holy Spirit, come and fill us afresh with your presence, we pray, through Christ our Lord.